بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كرم الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار So this is our third lesson This is our third lesson on the topic of the goals and objectives behind the commands and prohibitions in Islam and in the second lesson what we did is that we began the lesson with uh, an important citation from Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala and what he explained in that uh, citation was that in all of the actions of Allah whether in creating or whether in commanding. So there is Al-Khalq, which is what Allah does of creating things, and there is Al-Amr, which is what Allah does of commanding things, of ordering and of prohibiting. And that in every act of Allah, or in every order of Allah, there is wisdom. There is definitely a wisdom. However, he then raised the point as to whether it is necessary and from wisdom itself that Allah should inform each and every one of his servants of the wisdom behind each and every single action or command or prohibition. And he said, no, it's not. It's not because this, you know, and then he gave the example of even in the world of how the kings of the world or the legislations of the world that it is not from wisdom that every single subject has to know the reason and the purpose and the wisdom behind every single law, every single command, every single prohibition, every single injunction. No. And that's beyond the capability uh, and it's burdensome upon the servants in any case. So he said that this is not necessary. Uh, however, there are general principles that we can understand. We know that in a general sense, all of Allah's actions and his laws that there are wisdoms behind them we know that in a general sense and we know that in a general sense there is wisdom uh, hikmah there is mercy which is rahmah and likewise there is maslaha there is you know benefit in you know what allah has legislated and what he has commanded we also raise the point as well that in this position, in this viewpoint, we are balanced between two extremes. The first extreme are those such as the Ash'aris, for example, who deny that there are wisdoms and reasons and purposes and goals behind the command, commands of Allah Azawajal. So they denied uh, Al-Ilal or Al-Hikam, which are wisdoms or reasons behind laws. So they went to this, you know, this extreme. And then we have others such as the, the Mu'tazila. And so their general position is, you know, very rational and saying that basically everything in the Sharia has to 
agree with the intellect and there has to be a rational explanation and a rash, rational reason right so they went to the to the to the other side so the people of the sunnah and jama'ah they are in between and they basically say that yes there is there are wisdoms there are benefits in whatever allah commands whatever he prohibits and we can know that in a general sense and we can also know specific instances where we have been informed by the sharia that this thing has been legislated for this purpose or affairs which you know in a limited sense we can we can understand clearly the the, the wisdom or the reason behind it however they do not make it a condition or a requirement and they do not impose upon the servants to know the wisdoms behind every single command also for the servants to benefit from the commands and prohibitions they do not need to know the wisdoms right? for you to act upon a command or keep away from a prohibition the intended wisdom will be achieved irrespective of whether you know or understand it or not right so to make these types of requirements of you know reason rationale and knowing that this is this is burdensome and it is it is not actually uh, necessary so the position of ahl sunnah is uh, in between uh, those two extremes and then we also gave uh, a quick illustration of uh, how for example uh, there are some things whose harm is very direct and immediate for example a murder when someone commits a murder it's very immediate very direct you can see this is clearly a harmful action or theft for example and so this is this is clear everyone understands and knows that uh, the, the, it's prohibition and then there are other things for example where the harm is somewhat delayed for example consumption of alcohol right the person becomes under influence and maybe some hours later or maybe you know the, the, there's harm to his family because of domestic abuse or maybe 10 20 years later you know he, his liver becomes damaged or maybe it leads to other harms and evils in the society so now here the, the, the harm is not really direct but it's somewhat delayed and then there are other types of things whose harm you know, sometimes it takes decades or maybe even centuries for the effect of that thing to be seen upon upon individuals and societies. Like, for example, riba, the, the you know indulging in usury, or for example, uh, uh, when when people engage in uh, when they have multiple partners and they commit lewdness and and you know uh, shameful deeds openly. When this spreads within society, then you start getting diseases that weren't there before. So the point being, it's not within the intellects, the minds, to understand the, the long-term benefits or the long-term harms of certain things. Right? But the Sharia, Allah has legislated for His servants that which is in their beneficial uh, interests. Um, then we also went around speaking about how the Sharia is uh, an effect, an athar from the athar of Allah and there is no tafawut, just like in the creation there is no tafawut, no futur, there is no rift, there is no inconsistency when we reflect in Allah's creation. Then similarly there is itqan, there is precision and there is you know, uh, coherence in the commands and prohibitions of Allah Azza wa Jal. Then we mentioned some of the evidences, we mentioned three or four types of evidences. Uh, for everything that we mentioned and that's where we left off in the previous lesson so we're going to continue today inshallah ta'ala and today we're going to begin by uh, 
reading a passage from Imam al-Shatibi ta'ala from his book uh, Al-Muwafaqat. And again, as I said before, that we're going to keep speaking around what you see on the, on the slide, on the screen, uh, that laws are legislated in order to bring about benefits and repel harms with the aim of protecting the beneficial interests of humanity by guaranteeing their vital necessities, which are the dhururiyat, their needs, which are the hajat, and the means of perfection, which are the tahsiniyat. So everything that we're discussing is kind of revolving around this statement and explaining some of the details, the finer points with respect to this particular statement. So, uh, as we've said, um, what we should have gathered so far is that this legislation of Allah Azawajal, which is free of any flaws, uh, free of any uh, shortcomings, then why has it been legislated? It is not simply to bring people uh, or to, to basically uh, control people and you know, to, make, to, to, to subject them to, to religion, so to speak, which is the way of thinking that you see the secularists and the atheists and materialists their understanding is that the Islamic legislation, it is just to control people and it is just to subjugate them and it is to limit them and it is to hinder them. And so this is the false uh, picture and the false depiction uh, that, they, that they make of the commands and the uh, prohibitions. So this is, this is false. Rather, the legislation has been put and placed in order to achieve the objectives of the legislator. Who is the legislator? It is Allah Azawajal. Allah legislates for the beneficial interests for His servants. And what are they? It is to basically allow them to establish the world, to establish the world and to establish the deen together. Right? A combination of the deen and the dunya. Right? So there's no... Restriction, there's no control, there's no limitation. Rather, it is to bring about the beneficial interests for your religion, for your deen, and likewise for your dunya together. And so, how does it do this? What is the, the general spirit running through all of the commands and prohibitions? Then, as we've been through this many times before, we'll repeat it again. It is either to protect the what we call the necessities those things which we simply cannot do without right which must be protected and they are five affairs there are five things they are your religion sound correct religion then it is uh, your the, the the person nafs, meaning your life the protection of life then it is the protection of intellect the sound mind whereby you, you keep your rational faculties to be able to you know, make the right decisions. And likewise, protection of your offspring, nasl, your lineage. And uh, likewise, your mal, which is your wealth. These are the things which simply must be protected. Without protection of these things, then a person's worldly life and a person's life in the hereafter simply cannot be safeguarded. So these are what we call the necessities. These are the necessities. And so, th- yeah, so it is deen, a deen, which is sound religion. And then uh, al-aqal, which is reason. And then it is uh, an-nafs, which is 
you know, the, the, the soul. And then it is uh, an nasal, which is lineage, your offspring, and, you know, attributing, attributing offspring to the correct, you know, parents and so on and so forth. And finally, al-mal, wealth. So, these five things are, are, are the dururiyat, the necessities. So this would be, for example, in, in the parable that we gave in the previous lessons, where it would be the shelter, would be the house, right? So you need a house in order to protect yourself from the elements and from the wild animals. You cannot do without shelter. It is absolutely necessary, right? So these are the things which are absolutely necessary in the, in, in the dunya, right? The, these five affairs, they are called the five necessities. So, the Sharia is legislated to protect these five necessities. Because these necessities are the foundation of, you know, living in, in, in every single religion even. These are the five necessities which are absolutely essential, without which you cannot establish uh, life. Um, and then, secondly, so, so the Sharia addresses the dururiyat like this, or it is to protect the hajat, which are the needs, meaning those things which, although not essential, without them your life becomes a bit difficult. <clears throat> so this would include the various interactions that we have with each other, the dealings, right? This would include things like trade and you know things of that nature. And so without them, life would become quite difficult. There would be, there would be haraj, mashaqqa, there would be hardship and difficulty. So that's the second aspect that the legislation covers. And the third aspect is the tahsiniyat, as we said. And this goes back to uh, things by which we beautify, by which we do things in a good way, in the best way, with good manners. Right? We do the, the dururiyat or the hajat, we do them in the best way uh, possible. So, uh, this is what we what we covered, and we, we want to um, read from Imam Shatibi Taala, just so that we can that we are taken from from uh, the the text of this book, and just to consolidate some of the you know uh, things that we learned in previous lessons. So we'll start. This chapter is Kitabul Maqasid. This is actually one particular section in the entire book. Right, so the entire you know three or four volume book. This is one section, and this is one book of the numerous books that make up the uh, the work. And this book is called Kitabul Maqasid. And so within this, he covers the uh, many of the issues that we are discussing in in this series of lessons. So the first thing that he says is, let us begin by first of all presenting a muqaddimah like an introduction or a primer in relation to this topic. And he says, وَهِيَ أَنَّ وَضَعَ الشَّرَاعِعِ إِنَّمَا هُوَ لِمَصَالِحِ الْإِبَادِ فِي الْعَاجِلِ فِي الْعَاجِلِ وَالْآجِلِ مَعًا He says, the first point is then that the legislations have been placed for the beneficial interests of the servants in this life and the next life Together. So this now is an important point for us to understand that the legislation of Islam bears in mind the reality that there is an afterlife. 
right? As opposed to, for example, in, in secular law, in the law that nations run, there's nothing apart from the, world, the life of this world, right? So therefore, this will then affect the nature of the law, whom it benefits, what are its objectives, and so on and so forth. So, one thing we should clearly understand about the Sharia is that it is placed for the beneficial interest of the servant, servants, not just in this life, but in the hereafter as well. And so, this point is useful that when we come to discuss or to address many of the shubuhat that are brought by you know, the, the munafiqun, the hypocrites, the apostates, the atheists and people like that, then before we discuss anything, we have to have an agreement. We have to make clear to them that basically the legislation of Islam is unlike any other legislation because it is placed in order to protect the beneficial interests of this life and the next life. So unless you are prepared to accept that there is an afterlife and we can come to an agreement on that point, then any of your objections against you know, the legislation of Islam or specific aspects of it, then they are irrelevant and baseless. They are irrelevant and baseless. Unless you want to accept for argument's sake that there is a hereafter, and that there is reward, and that there is punishment, and that there is absolute justice. Right? If you're willing to admit that and accept that for argument's sake, then we can now come and discuss you know, your, your shubuhat or your misconceptions about some specific, you know, about some of the specific, uh, the, 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 the laws or whatever else. So this is the first point that he makes, and we should understand very clearly that these legislations are for the beneficial interest of the servants in this life and the next life in which there is accountability, uh, resurrection, accountability, and there will be reward, and there will be paradise, and no one will ever escape uh, injustice. Then he says, وَهَذِهِ دَعْوَى لَا بُدَّ مِنْ إِقَامَةِ الْبُرْحَانِ عَلَيْهَا صِحَّةً أَوْ فَسَادًا Which means, he says, this is a claim that we've made. This is now a claim that we've put forward. That this Islamic legislation has been placed for the beneficial interests of the servants in this life and the next. He says, this is a claim that needs the establishment of the proof in detail. However, he says, this is not the place to go into that in detail. However, he says, there has occurred a difference. Um, and then he goes on to mention what I said before about the Ash'aris, how they deny that there are wisdoms and reasons behind the laws of Islam. And he mentions Ar-Razi, Ar-Razi, Fakhruddin Ar-Razi, is from those who are attributed to the uh, Ash'ari school of thought. He's from the Ilmul, people of Ilmul Kalam. And, you know, he's from the, the Jahmiyyah whom Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah refuted in detail. And so he's expressing the, the view that the Islamic laws, there are, there, there are no reasons or wisdoms behind them. And this is a false position. Um, so after mentioning this, he then goes on to uh, establish some brief proofs. And so he says, وَالْمُعْتَمَدْ إِنَّمَا هُوَ أَنَّا أن استقرينا من الشريعة أنها وضعت لمصالح الإباد استقراء لا ينازع فيه الرازي ولا غير ولا غيره فإن الله تعالى يقول في بعثه الرسل وهو الأصل. So basically he says that by comprehensively comprehensively looking at all of the texts and all of the evidences, we've come to the conclusion that this Sharia has been put 
for the beneficial interest of the servants with such arguments and with such a comprehensive uh, way that Ar-Razi is not able to dispute any of this or nor is anybody else. Then he goes on to mention numerous evidences. So look at the way that we derive the evidence from uh, these ayat. First of all, the statement of Allah Azawajal, Rusulan, Mubashirin wa Mundhirin, he says that we sent messengers as those who give glad tidings and as those who warn in order that so that not this word here this lamb is the lamb of ta'leel the lamb of if you like causation or the lamb of you know the reason behind something and so Ibn al-Qayyim says that this type of evidence in the Qur'an, there are literally you know, hundreds if not scores and scores of examples of where we have the lamb of ta'leel. And this now is a clear, explicit refutation of those people like the Ash'aris who say that there are no reasons or wisdoms behind the commands of Allah Azawajal or the actual actions of Allah Azawajal. So here in this ayah, Allah he says, we sent messengers as those who come and give glad tidings to the people. Glad tidings to those who believe of paradise and forgiveness. And as those who warn, meaning warn those who disbelieve and are sinful and disobedient. Why? لِأَلَّا So that there will be not for mankind any proof against Allah after the sending of the messengers. So clearly here there is a reason, there is a wisdom and a reason that Allah has clearly explained in this ayah for the sending of the messengers. And that is so that no one will have any excuse, any argument, any proof on Yawm Al-Qiyamah when he's resurrected and held to account. Right? To cut off any argument, any hujjah that anyone may be able to bring. So clearly this action of Allah had a wisdom and a reason behind it which Allah himself clearly stated in this ayah. And that's Surah, Surah An-Nisa, verse 160, 165. Likewise, the ayah that we mentioned in the previous lesson, And we did not send you except as a mercy to all of mankind. So why did Allah send the Messenger of Allah? Was there, was there, was there a reason? And the answer is clearly yes, because Allah wanted to show mercy to His creation. So hence He sent the Messenger of Allah as a mercy to all of the creation. Very clear, very clear evidence and very clear statement of the reason and the purpose behind that action of Allah Azawajal. At Surah Al-Anbiya, Surah 21, verse 107. And even about the actual, the very creation itself, Allah Azawajal, He says... And he is the one who created the heavens and the earth in six days whilst his arsh was over the water. The lamb of ta'leel, the lamb of the reason or causation. Why? In order to test you to test you as to which of you is the best in his deeds, is the most excellent in his deeds. 
So here it is clearly mentioned that the reason for creation is as a test and a trial. And similar to this is the ayah, وَمَا خَلَقُتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا I did not create jinn and men except that they may worship me. And similar to this as well, الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةِ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا The one who created death and life in order that he may test you to, 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 to see who, which of you is the best in deeds. So all of this now is in terms of the actions of Allah in creating and sending messengers. Creating and sending messengers. This is in terms of his actions. What about in terms of his actual commands? Because as we said, there is al-khalq, which is him creating and his actions in that respect. And there is the commands which Allah issues. What about that? We see likewise many, many evidences in the Qur'an, and likewise the sunnah. So from them is what Allah said after the verse which mentions wudu', wudu', right? The performing of ablution. And how we are you know, allowed to do a tayammum if, if we cannot find any water. He says, مَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيَجْعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْ حَرَجٍ Allah does not desire to make any difficulty upon you. Allah does not desire to make any difficulty upon you. وَلَكِنْ يُرِيدُ لِيُطَحِّرَكُمْ وَلِيُتِمَّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكُمْ However, He desires to purify you and to complete His favor upon you. This now is very clear and explicit. That first of all, Allah, he, you read, He has a, an irada, that He desires something behind what He legislated. And He desires for His servants, not that they have any hardship or difficulty, but that He wants to purify them. And He wants to uh, bestow His favor upon them. So hence the legislation of wudu, and likewise all the other, the, the other legislations, they are there, uh, in, in this particular instance, for purity and for Allah's favor. That's in Surah Al-Ma'idah. Likewise, with respect to fasting, it is very clear. Allah Zawajal, He said, كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ السِّيَامِ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ He has prescribed upon you fasting. Just as it was prescribed upon those who came before you. لَعَلَّكُمْ Clear evidence that there is a reason and a wisdom and a goal behind it. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ In order that you may have taqwa, that you may develop taqwa, the, the piety and the fear of, of Allah Azza wa Jal. That's in Surah Al-Baqarah. Likewise, the ayah we mentioned in the previous lesson, إِنَّ الصَّلَاةَ تَنْهَا عَنِ الْفَحْشَاءِ وَالْمُنْكَرِ Indeed, the prayer, it prohibits from al-fahsha, from shameful evil deeds, wal-munkar, and from, from evil deeds. So the prayer has been legislated for specific wisdoms and reasons, and from the greatest of them, uh, among others, are those which are mentioned in this ayah, the prevention of al-fahsha wal-munkar. Likewise, when the qibla was changed, Allah Azawajal, He said, فَوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ شَطَرَةً لِأَلَّا يَكُونَ لِلنَّاسِ عَلَيْكُمْ حُجَّةً So, he ordered the messenger of Allah and the believers to turn in the direction of the original, the Qibla, which is the Kaaba, 
to turn away from Jerusalem because that was the Qibla that the Jews, that Yahud had uh, made. And what was the reason? So that the people do not have any proof over you or any argument over you. Meaning if you continue facing their Qibla, they will then have an argument against you. Why, why are you turning to our Qibla? And then you reject our way. Right? So you made them t- to turn to the original Qibla. And so therefore the, ex- the proofs were cut off against them. Again, a clear reason behind that particular command. And also, an example in the legislation of fighting, we see clear reasons and wisdoms. Permission has been granted to those who are being fought against, who are being fought against, in that they have been wronged. So here, what is the legislation of fighting that the Muslims were uh, permitted to fight back against the transgressors and the aggressors from the people of disbelief and uh, polytheism? He said, It has been permitted for you to fight those who have been fought against because they were wronged. Clear uh, explanation or a reason behind the actual legislation. We also mentioned the ayah to do with retribution, the law of retribution in the previous lesson. For you in the retribution, Al-Qisas, is life, O people of understanding. And finally, one more is the statement of Allah Azza This is when Allah Azza took from the backs of the offspring of Adam, the people, and made them testify that, uh, concerning themselves, Am I not your Lord? And the people said, Yes, we testify. أَن تَقُولُوا يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ إِنَّا كُنَّا عَنْ هَذَا غَافِلِينَ Lest you say on the day of judgment, indeed we were heedless of this. So these are only a very small selection of ayat in the Qur'an. And Ash-Shatibi says, وَالْمَقْسُودَ التَّنْبِيحِ The intent here is just to notify you of, of examples. And Ibn al-Qayyim mentions many, many, many examples uh, you know, in his refutation of the, the Qadariya uh, in his book. And uh, so here, Ash-Shatibi establishes the evidences for all of that. And then he moves into the first Mas'ala. And he says, تَكَالِفُ الشَّرِيَةِ تَرْجِئُ إِلَى حِفْظِ مَقَاسِدِهَا فِي الْخَلْقِ وَهَذِهِ الْمَقَاسِدِ لَا تَعْدُوا ثَلَاثَةَ أَقْسَامِ all of the commands of the Sharia return back to the protection of its objectives in the creation, and these return back. These don't return. These return back to three types. So this now goes back to what you see on the screen: the vital necessities, those which are dururiya, those which are hajiya, and those which are tahsiniya. Now, what he does is he gives some gives some good illustrations and good examples. So we'll go through the rest of this, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, to help us uh, understand examples of each of the, these two types more clearly. So he says, as for the first, for ammadhururiyya, as for the vital necessities, what does it mean? It means that these are things which are vital, without which our beneficial interests cannot be established in this, in the deen or the dunya. 
And if any one of these things are lost, then it will lead to corruption and loss of life and you know commotion. And likewise, in the hereafter, a person will lose his deliverance and his reward. So these affairs, as we said, uh, he then goes on to explain, how are these necessities, how are they protected? There are two ways that the Sharia protects everything. One is from the angle of wujud, and the other is from the angle of adam. So these two terms you need to write down because they are technical terms. And it will become clear what it means, inshallah, by the examples. So when the Sharia, when, when the sharia comes in and wants to protect the vital necessities, like for example religion and life and intellect and one's lineage or genealogy and one's wealth, how does it do it? It does it in two ways. One is from the angle of wujud, min babil min janibil wujud, from the angle of existence, making these things to be, and the other one from the angle of min janibil adam, in making sure that they are not, not non-existent. Right? So if you just write these terms down, the examples will make it very, very clear what it's actually meant. So let's have a look at how the Sharia uh, achieves this. For example, the protection of the religion. Hifzuddin. Right? This is one of those five dururiyat. How does the Sharia ensure the protection of the religion? On the one hand, to make sure that it exists, what does it do? It commands with Iman. It commands you with Iman. Have Iman. Have Iman in Allah and His Messenger and the angels and the books. This is from Minjanib al-Wujud. Meaning, to make the actual thing to exist. Right? To make the deen to actually exist. What does it need? Well, there must be Iman in Allah and His Messenger and the books. Right? And then likewise, it commands with the pillars. It commands you with the prayer. Right? There can be no deen without the prayer. So it commands you to establish the prayer. This is min janibil wujud. Right? This is the sharia protecting this necessity of deen from the angle of making it exist. By commanding things for its existence. Right? So therefore it commands iman, it commands the shahada, commands the prayer, commands fasting, commands all of the other things which, which, uh, which give existence to the deen. So... Al-Zakah, uh, Al-Siyam, Al-Hajj, and so on and so forth, right? For its actual existence. Likewise, we can see that um, in terms of protecting al-Nafs wal-Aql, meaning yourself and your reason, we find that there are things which are from the permitted affairs, from the affairs of habits, which the Sharia also allows or commands or for example, things that you eat, things that you drink, things that you wear, things you know, the, the things that you, the, the, the shelter and the abode. What do all these things do? They protect your life. They make sure your life actually exists. So without food and drink, your life wouldn't exist. So from minjani bil wujud, the Sharia permits or enjoins certain things. Right, which are from the adat, which are the customary habitual things. So you must eat, you must drink, you must take uh, clothing, you must take shelter. And this is to make life to actually exist. Right? On the other hand, you see that the sharia will prohibit certain things. 
to ensure the non-existence of the deen or the absence of intellect, sound intellect, or the absence of lineage or the absence of your wealth. Right? So for example, the Sharia prohibits the wastage of wealth, being a spendthrift, wasting wealth, or allowing a foolish person to have custody of his wealth. We'll just destroy it and, you know, Right, so here what the Sharia is doing is min janibil adam. It min janibil adam. It is uh, prohibiting certain things to ensure that the non-existence of wealth does not take place. So do you understand what's happening now? The law it is coming from two angles: min janibil wujud to make the actual thing that, that is trying to protect to remain in existence, to be in existence, and to remain in existence. And then from the other angle, min janibil adam, to make sure that that thing does not go into non-existence. Do you understand? So, so now when you when you when you understand this clearly, you will see. For example, you will now start to understand. Okay, why is, for example, jihad legislated? Well, it is to prevent the non-existence of the deen, min janibil adam. Why is the had the punishment of ridda? Legislated, it is to protect the deen min janibil adam of non-existence. You understand, right? And why has you know things like repentance and forgiveness and all the other things where you know uh, and, and and the prayer and so on, why why is it legislated, right? Min janibil wujud to make sure that the that the deen exists, and then you can do the same thing. You take each one of these five necessities. So Islam is protecting sound religion. And then it is protecting uh, sound to, to 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 help you keep your mind right, right. So minjani bil wujud wal adam, right. So from wujud you must eat, you must drink, right. You must do things which keep your mind um, sound, you know, like the, the the worship and the adhkar and things like that. And you avoid things like alcohol is prohibited. Why? Because it makes the akal to be non-existent. You lose your mind. Drugs prohibited. You lose your mind, right? Things like the prohibition of anger. La taqdab. When you become anger and flow with anger, you lose your mind. Your, your rational faculties are gone, right? So it prohibits those things which lead to the non-existence of that thing. In this case, which is which is akal. Likewise, the same thing you can look at in terms of mal, which is wealth. And the same thing in terms of lineage. Lineage. Adultery, fornication is prohibited because of the mixing and the confusing of lineage. People then do not have, you know, ascribed properly to them their parents or their offspring. Right? And this then now has an impact upon inheritance rights and things like that. Everything becomes confusing. And so therefore now lineage becomes lost and also material rights inheritance rights become confusing as well right so there are some things min janibil adam they 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 uh, make sure that that thing is not lost and some some things min janibil wujud like nikah marriage for example is enjoined and and so on and so forth right for the protection of 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 nasal and whatever follows on on from that so uh, what he's explaining here shatabi rahimahu ta'ala is these two affairs min janib al-wujud and min janib al-adam. And 
you know, he then mentions all of these necessities that we mentioned, ad-deen, wal-nafs, wal-aqal, wal-nasal, wal-mal. As for the hajiyat, those things which are the needs that we have, the needs, those things without which life becomes uh, difficult. Um, then he says, likewise when we look in the sharia, we see there are many things which are legislated that full, that are basically fulfill the affairs of the hajiyat, which remove the difficulties and the hardships. For example, um, when you are traveling, then you are allowed to break your fast and you are allowed to shorten your prayer. Um, likewise, he mentions in terms of many of the mutual dealings that we have with each other. For example, trade dealings that we have. There are many types of interactions, many types of um, trade, specific types of trade dealings, like such as uh, guarantees and, you know, um, specific uh, types of transactions which have been allowed in order to remove difficulties uh, from, from, from the people. And then he goes on to mention the at-tahsiniyat, uh, uh, which are those things really that come back down to the good manners and the most excellent ways of doing things. Anyway, so that's from Imam al-Shatabi. We just wanted to quote from his words uh, to... to um, to establish some of the things that we mentioned previously. So now, once all that is clear, we're now going to move into the next issue of Maslaha in a bit more detail. In the previous lesson, we gave the definition of Maqasid. What does it mean by Maqasid? Goals and objectives. We gave the linguistic definition and we gave the technical definition. Now we are going to look at Maslaha. What is Maslaha? What is its linguistic definition? What is the technical definition? How do we actually know what is a maslaha? And whose maslaha are we speaking about? Is it yours? Is it mine? Is it the society's? Right, which maslaha are we speaking about? Which maslaha has the sharia come with? This also is very important for us to actually understand very, very clearly. So our discussion of this term maslaha and all the connected issues, they will answer these important questions uh, for us. So... Um, what time is the Adhan for Maghrib? 8, Sorry? 8, 42, yeah. 42. We'll continue then, yeah? Inshallah. Okay. So, first of all, the reality of Maslaha, and uh, we can discuss this in uh, numerous uh, points. Uh, but as, as we said before, the aim of the law is preservation of the Masalih, of the servants, in this life and the next as we already established. This means we must have an understanding of what exactly is maslaha. So first of all, the word maslaha, maslaha in the Arabic, it takes on the wazan or the form of maf'ala, maf'ala. And this is similar to al-manfa'a. And it is explained that this has the meaning of as-salah. As-salah. It is a masdar. It is like a, an infinitive or a verbal noun. It means as-salah. And what it means is anything which brings out a benefit, which draws out a benefit. And this can be whether it is to bring about something positive or a benefit, 
or to repel some harm that might come to you. Because repelling harm is also a benefit. Right? So an actual benefit, tangible benefit, and also to remove something that will be of harm to you, then that is also benefit as well. Right? So, so a maslaha, maslaha covers both things. Right? An actual, something which is nafi' to you, a benefit to you, and to repel something which is harmful to you. Both of these things come under what we call maslaha. Maslaha. Right? Um, however, there is an additional point that we must understand, which is that this particular form, this wasn of maf'ala, the particular form and pattern of this word is such that it actually represents a, a strong meaning. A strong meaning. So it means salah qawi. Meaning not just benefit in general, but, uh, but you know, a strong benefit. A strong benefit. This is the meaning of the word maslaha, what it represents. So this is purely in terms of the linguistic meaning of the word. Now what do we mean in terms of the uh, legislative or the technical term, then the technical term is something that we must uh, discuss in a bit more detail. So, right, so first of all, you've seen clearly that the linguistic meaning means what? It means to bring about benefit or to remove harm, right? This is maslaha, maslaha. Now, the question arises... Right, which what what maslaha are we really speaking? Because this is very general. This is very general. A person could think to himself, "This is for my maslaha. This is for my maslaha. This is for my maslaha. This is for my maslaha." Right? Or a group of people could come together. For example, a group of thieves and robbers could come together and say, "This is for our maslaha. This is for our maslaha. This is for our maslaha." Right? Or, for example, a group of bankers. Bankers who bank could come together and say, This is for our maslaha, this is for our maslaha, and this is for our maslaha. Or a group of military leaders, or anybody could come along and say, Right, what is maslaha? What is for our benefit, and what will repel harm for us? Right? So, linguistically, we've just discussed that maslaha is whatever is of benefit, and whatever repels harm, this comes under maslaha. So now the question is, well, Who's maslaha? Right? So, clearly now from these examples, you should know that it cannot just be the maslaha of anybody, or of any person, or of any party. So, what maslaha is it specifically that we are speaking of? And that maslaha, pay attention to this now, the maslaha is al muhafadha ala maqsood al-shar'. This is the maslaha that we are speaking of. In terms of the legislation, it is to protect the objectives of the Sharia. Now, with this, you can now clearly see what are the masalih that we are speaking of in our whole discussion. We are speaking only of the 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 the, the, the object those which come under the objectives of the Sharia itself. This now returns the absolute benefits back to, meaning in terms of that it is what Allah has legislated for His servants, and it removes whatever the servants consider and believe to be their own benefits, their own masalih, 
Because otherwise there would be conflict, right? There would be conflict. There would be contradiction. There would be incoherence. There would be chaos. If the masal, if, if, if we understood masalih just to be mine and yours and everybody else's. So what is the maslaha here that we are speaking of? It is whatever it comes under, whatever protects the actual objectives of the sharia. Right? And this goes back to what? The daruriyat, the hajat, and the tahsiniyat. Right? This is what the, the legislation is trying to protect. That is what the maslaha is that we are speaking of. So then, there is, obviously there is a, to give you a, a quick illustration uh, of why we need to make this very important distinction that it's not personal maslaha, it is the maslaha of the legislation. So before Islam, before Islam came, you know that the people of Jahiliyyah, they used to bury the female uh, child very, very alive, because it was a disgrace to them to have to, you know, to have a, a daughter, right? So they would bury the female child alive. They used to see this as a maslaha in their society. This was a maslaha. This was something beneficial. Likewise, they would not allow the female to inherit. The female was prohibited to inherit wealth. They considered this to be a maslaha in their society. Likewise. They would, if for example, a person murdered somebody else, then as retribution, they would allow the murdering of an entire family of the murderer as retribution. So if you kill someone, then you will be killed, and your wife will be killed, and your children will be killed, and your brother will be killed like, uh, as retribution. Right? So they would allow this, and this they saw to be a maslaha. And... You know, likewise, they used to believe that in drinking alcohol and in games of chance, and likewise, they would also, for example, adopt a son and treat him as if he was a real son and give him all of the rights of inheritance and everything else. At tabani, they used to call it, right? This used to be a maslaha in that society. So, and, and we can say the same thing about all societies. Every society has what it, what it considers to be it from its masalih. Right? In many of these societies, for example, drinking alcohol is a maslaha because they believe it brings some benefits. Right? Then there's other things which they consider to be, to be masalih. So the point being, when Islam came, then, um, you know, Islam came to protect these five necessities deen, aqal, nafs, mal, and uh, the, the, the nasal. So what did it do? Right, it overturned what the pagan Arabs in Jahiliyyah what they believed to be was maslaha. So, for example, it prohibited the burying of female newborns alive. Right, and it condemned the Arabs for doing this evil, despicable practice. Likewise, it gave females a specified portion of the inheritance on the basis of you know. Uh, responsibility. They are given in accordance to their responsibility uh, in in uh, in comparison to males. Right? Males have more responsibility, so they are given a, a larger share. And likewise, in the law of retribution, it prohibited from killing anybody else. Only the one who committed the crime of murder would he be subject to the law of retribution. Likewise, it prohibited al-khamar. 
alcohol, and games of chance. And it made it prohibited the attribution of any person to other than his real father, to other than his real uh, parents. So you can see that the maslaha that we are speaking of is upon the criterion of the sharia. And it is what we call the muhafadha of the maqsood of the shara, of the, you know, the, the actual, um, you know, the, uh, the maslaha is the protection of the goals that the sharia has come to uh, attain. So once that is clear, we now move to the third issue, which is how do we come to know what is a maslaha? How do we know what is a maslaha? What are, how do we know? And so uh, there are a number of points that the, the scholars give of how do we recognize what actually is a maslaha from what is not a maslaha. We mention these five points very quickly. And then we'll end the lesson there, inshallah ta'ala. So the first of them is, point number one is that the benefit has to be something that is verified consistently. Right, this is how we know something to be a, a maslaha, that the benefit in it or the harm in it has to be muhaqqaqan, muttaridan. Right? It has to be verified consistently. So for example, there are some things that we know through experience as a matter of fact. The benefit of water, for example, in bringing coolness, and, you know, for example, the fact that burning crops, right, is, is, is harmful and wastage. These are things that we know just by experience, and repeat experience that this is basically harmful, right? So there are many things that we know by consistent experience, repeat experience, that they are actually beneficial or that they are actually harmful. Right? This is one way that we know. Now these points are very, very important for you to understand. Don't, um, don't let the importance of these points pass you by because you, re- you, you realize that when it comes to actual discussing the shubuhat, that for example, many of the uh, non-Muslims and the atheists and the apostates bring, if you don't understand and grasp these specific points, then you will not be able to repel those shubuhat, right? So the issue now here is what is maslaha, right? You might be discussing with an atheist or someone else about law and about goals and objectives and whatever else. And so you want to establish, okay, what is maslaha with this person? What, what is a beneficial interest? Who are we speaking of first of all? And secondly, how do we know what is a beneficial interest before we even start discussing anything else? So, the first thing is very clear, everybody knows this, from your own experience. There are some things which you know to be of clear benefit, through repeat practical experience, and they are muhaqqaq, mutarid, they are meaning that they are consistently verified, and you know, uh, you know, no issue in that at all. The second way is that the actual benefit or the harm, the reverse of it, is something that you know overwhelmingly to be the case. Right? And your intellect immediately understands the benefit or the maslaha in that thing. Right? And you don't need to, you don't need to think a great deal 
to, to, to realize that. For example, um, for example, imagine there's a person who's going to drown. A person is about to drown. Or imagine that someone has had a crash in a car and perhaps the car, there's fuel leaking on the floor and perhaps there's a danger that it might burst into flames, right? So now, when you look at the situation, the overwhelming maslaha, there is overwhelming benefit in a person saving the drowning person or pulling out that person in the car who might be subject to further harm. The maslaha here is overwhelming, is it not? Right? To save a person's life. Do you need to think a great deal to realize that, to know that you don't? You automatically know with the minimal amount of thought that the maslaha, the benefit is overwhelming in the situation to save that person's life. Right? At, you know, at, at a minimal risk of harm to anybody else. Right? So here, this is now the second type of thing that we can consider to be a maslaha. Where the maslaha is overwhelming. It's overwhelming, the, the overwhelmingly uh, the, 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 the case. Um, So even though, for example, when you save this person who's drowning and you might, you yourself might get ill because the coldness of the water might make you ill, the overwhelming benefit is what? A life is saved, right? So even though there are potential risks, you know overwhelmingly that the benefit is going to be attained. So this now is the second way that we know something is an actual maslaha. The third way that we know something is a maslaha is or the opposite when it's a mafsada, is that we know, is for example, when we do not have an alternative for that thing. When there is not an alternative for that thing. Let me, let me give an example here of, for example, drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol, right. Drinking alcohol has some harms and it has some benefits. What are the harms? The harms, for example, are Losing your mind, losing your aql, uh, bringing like arguments, khusumat between people within families, and as we said, domestic violence, things like that. Likewise, destruction of wealth, wasting wealth on this thing which is harming your body, harming your liver, harming your organs, creating problems in your family. All of these are clear harms, yes? But then there are some benefits as well. <clears throat> There's a benefit of, for example, it makes you brave. Right, makes you lose your fear, makes you brave in battle, or it makes you more generous, right? And also, it removes anxiety from your mind. It removes your anxieties. You can drink away and remove remove your sorrows. These are some benefits. So, um, now, however, is there an alternative to the benefits that alcohol brings. Meaning, are there other ways and means that we can bring about the same benefits that alcohol is, that contains? And the answer is yes. Because, for example, there are other medicinal benefits aside the ones that alcohol brings. Alcohol has some medicinal benefits. But there are other things that give you the same benefits. Can you bring about bravery through means other than alcohol? Yes, you can by way of admonitions and sermons and encouragement and things of that nature. 
Can you remove anxiety by ways other than alcohol? Yes, you can. Right? So meaning that there, there are other things, alternatives, outside of alcohol, that can also bring the actual benefits. Sorry, but you said no alternative. Sorry? But you said no alternative. No. So what, what we're saying is that when we consider something to be a maslaha or a mafsada, right? So here now alcohol has good things and bad things, yes? So is, there, is it a maslaha? So it's not a maslaha. Alcohol is not a maslaha. Because the actual alleged benefits can be found, there are, there are, there are alternatives to them. We'll come back to it, inshallah. So yes, your your question again. Yes, so yes, you 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 said that there is no alternative. So sorry, sorry, I meant to say that. So the, the question, so what we are looking at basically, that when you have something which has harms and benefits, here I've used alcohol as an example of what is a mafsada, right? So so in this example, alcohol has some benefits. But those benefits cannot be used to make alcohol to be a maslaha. Because, because those benefits have alternatives and replacements that exist in other things. So therefore here now, if those things exist, we cannot therefore you know, say that alcohol is a maslaha. And at the same time, the harms that it brings as well of domestic violence, loss of aql, loss of life, destruction of wealth, um, you know, putting a burden on the health uh, system of nations, things like that, yeah? Is there anything that can overturn those? There isn't, right? Those are harms that you cannot be, you know. So therefore, in no way can you consider to alcohol to be an actual maslaha, right? So this thing is very important to understand because it comes back to the issue of like when you're discussing, as I said, with atheists, non-Muslims, and they'll, so they'll come and say, for example, oh, but, you know, what's wrong with alcohol because you should allow people... Uh, the freedom, the free choice. So now they bring in the issue of free choice. Right? But how does free choice, how does free choice make alcohol a maslaha? Do you understand how they have a twisted way of looking at things? We're looking at the actual thing itself, inherently itself, is properties. Right? Right? So, so we, we clearly def- describe it to be a mafsada. Right, because we're looking at the overall thing, and any benefits it has can be replaced by other things, which means that the only thing left to it is really the harm in it. Right. So, whereas they will bring irrelevant arguments, they will start bringing philosophical, other, you know, silly arguments. Oh, we believe in freedom of whatever, as long as you're not harming anybody else, and there will be contradictions as well, right? Because alcohol there's, there's harm to it, right? Uh, you know. Intercourse outside of marriage is harm to it, right? And so many other things. So anyway, so the third is that um, the third. The, so the third principle is that we cannot find there is no alternative for it 
in order to bring the actual benefit or to remove the actual harm. Right? So there shouldn't be alternatives. So in alcohol, there are alternatives. So we can't consider it to be a maslaha. Right? And, and so on and so forth. That's the third that we, that we look at. The fourth, the fourth now is, the best way to explain the fourth one is to, is to give an actual example. So the fourth way that we know something is a maslaha is, let's say someone destroys somebody else's property. Right? Someone destroys somebody else's uh, property. So now what you do is you find that person. You find that person. Now by finding that person, there are, there's two things. There's two things. There is a benefit to the one whose property was destroyed, but there is loss to the one who's been fined. Right? And it's equal amounts. Right? So, so you've been fined a hundred pounds. For destroying someone's property of hundred pounds, so you have to you you a hundred pounds of your property now is lost. That person benefits. So the so it's equal now, isn't it? It's equal. You've given a hundred pounds fine. That person benefits from that hundred pounds, but you've just lost a hundred pounds, right? Is there benefit in this? Is there maslaha in this? Because the loss and the benefit is equal in a material way. Yes, he's lost a hundred. He's gained a hundred. Equal, equal. Is this maslaha or not? No, yeah, because there, there is what we call a murajjih. Here there is a murajjih. A murajjih is some other consideration. This is something else which gives more weight to one of the, of, of the two. So it's not equal anymore. Because here what we are doing is that we are restoring the right of a person. So even if materially the loss and the gain is equivalent, we are restoring a right that belonged to somebody. Right? So in this scenario, there is what we call a murajjih. That there is like something uh, uh, which, which you know, supports and gives strength to one of the two equal sides over the other. And so this is because there is the aspect of adal and insaf. There is justice being established here. Right? So this now makes this thing to be a maslaha. This is now a maslaha. This is now something which becomes a maslaha. Um, and then we have the, fine, the, the fifth way, um, which is... Right, so the fifth one is where you have something is a maslaha because it is... Um, how can we explain this? Um, right, so one thing is uh, is very likely to take place, and the other thing is like unclear, and you're not sure whether yes, no, is it going to take place or not. Right? The benefit in one is clear, and the other one, you're not sure whether it's actually going to take place or not. So, the best way to explain this. Um, is by an example given by Imam Malik rahimahullah ta'ala he's talking about you know the hadith when it says that when a, when, when a man proposes to a woman for marriage then do not make another proposal on top of your brother's proposal you all know this hadith right? right, you know this hadith so um, 
Now, Imam Malik explains about this hadith. He says, there's actually two different situations. The first situation is when a man proposes to a woman and there's no real response from the woman. She doesn't explain, she doesn't like, you know, have any interest or incline to that person or for example, you know, arrange the dowry or any such, you know. So, so it's just a man has proposed and that's it. So is this what the hadith is speaking about? Or there's another scenario which is where the man proposes and the woman shows an interest. Then the affair proceeds. There are meetings that take place. Then there's some sort of agreement that is understood. Then maybe a dowry has been specified. and ra- Right, so now we've gone a bit further in. And now the affair looks like it's m- most likely going to take place. Do you understand? Whereas in the first scenario... When a man is proposed, but the woman has not shown any interest, there's nothing developed, is that likely to take place? No, we don't know. Right? So this is what we mean. Something which is likely to be, you know, muhaqqaq, uh, mundabit, it is precise and likely to take place. Something which is muttar, it is... We don't know. We don't really know. Right? So, now what is the maslaha in each of these two situations? In the situation where... The, 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 the marriage proposal has been accepted, negotiated, a dowry has been agreed, and it's likely to take place. What is the maslaha now? The maslaha now is that they get married. And the mafsada now is for some man to come along and to make a second proposal. That's the mafsada, right? In the other situation, when the proposal has been given and there's no interest at all from, 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 from the woman, right? But there could be other other men for whom it is a maslaha for, for them and for her to consider marriage. Do you understand? So Imam Malik is explaining that it's, it's referring to that situation here, not this situation here. Because otherwise a maslaha would be lost in this situation. Right, so this is what we mean, that the fifth way that we know something is a maslaha is that, that whatever that thing is, that it has to be very likely to take place rather than just being in the air and not sure and you know not certain and not whatever else right so certainty as opposed to just um, unclear not sure not, not you know you're not clear as to whether it's going to take place or not likely or not likely right so this is another thing which distinguishes for us between a maslaha what is what is a maslaha what is a mafsada so So once all of this is clear, these are five ways that we know things which are maslaha. I want to finish because I don't want to leave this uh, loose. There's a statement from Imam al-Shatibi rahimahullah ta'ala that I want to mention. So he says, فَالْمَسَالِحْ وَالْمَفَاسِدْ الرَّاجِحَةِ إِلَى الدُّنْيَا إِنَّمَا تُفْهَمُ عَلَى مُقْتَدَى مَا غَلَبْ فَإِذَا كَانَ الْغَالِبْ جِهَةُ الْمَسْلَحَةِ فَهِيَ مَسْلَحَةَ الْمَفْهُومَةَ عُرْفًا وَإِذَا غَلَبَتْ الْجِهَةُ الْأُخْرَى فَهِيَ الْمَفْسَدَةَ الْمَفْهُومَةَ عُرْفًا So, وَلِذَلِكَ كَانَ الْفِعْلُ الْوَجْهَيْنِ مَنْسُوبًا إِلَى الْجِهَةِ الرَّاجِحَةِ فَإِنَّ رَجَحَةِ الْمَسْلَحَةِ فَمَطْلُوبُ وَيُقَالْ فِيهِ إِنَّهُ مَسْلَحَةِ وَإِذَا غَلَبَتْ جِهَةُ الْمَفْسَدَةِ فَمَحْرُوبٌ عَنْهُ Very important here. So it kind of summarizes everything that we said. He says, 
So those things which are the masalih, beneficial interests, and the mafasid, the harmful things, which are, are those which are rajiha, those things in which the harm or the benefit is overwhelming. Right? And so these things are understood on the basis of whatever is overwhelming. So like we gave the example of alcohol, the harm is overwhelming. Yes? Uh, adultery, fornication, the harm is overwhelming to the society. Not necessarily to the individual, even though there is harm to the individual. The harm is overwhelming, right? So the affairs, the masalih and the mafasid, it is not always the case that is something that is just pure benefit or pure harm. Most things are a mixture of harm and mixture of benefit. Which is why these principles are very important. Right? So what is the consideration? Consideration is where the harm is overwhelming or the benefit is overwhelming. That's how we know something is maslaha or mafsada. So he says, so therefore when, when the aspect of it which is maslaha is overwhelming, then this is what we define as being maslaha of benefit. And when the other angle of harm is overwhelming, then that is what we call to be mafsada. So, whenever you have anything which has two angles to it, right? like again, easy example is alcohol, then we always ascribe that thing to the thing which is overwhelming. So al- alcohol is mafsada, it is not maslaha. Why? Because we look at what is the overwhelming affair with respect to it. Right, and the final point, uh, if you allow me, because then we'll finish the entire section. So let me, if you allow me to just take five more minutes, inshallah ta'ala, uh, then we can start afresh in the next lesson. So this concludes this section. The next section now is, what is maslaha is not based upon your desires. This should now become clear now. A maslaha is not based upon hawa. And so in this respect, Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, "Inna sharia mabnaha wa asasuha ala al-hikam wa masalih al-ibad fi al-ma'ash wa al-ma'ad, wa hiya adlun kulluha, wa rahmatun kulluha, wa masalih kulluha, wa hikmatun kulluha. Fa kullu mas'alatin kharajat an al-adl ila al-jawr, wa an al-rahma ila ziddha, wa an al-maslaha ila al-mafsada, wa an al-hikma ila al-abath, fa laysat min al-sharia." He says. Indeed, the legislation is founded upon and built upon wisdoms and beneficial interests of the servants in this life and the next. It is pure justice, all of it. It is pure mercy, all of it. All of it is beneficial, beneficial interests. All of it is wisdom. And every single issue which departs from justice to injustice and from mercy to its opposite and from benefit to harm and corruption and from wisdom to you know what what is uh, um, without purpose and vain then it is not from the sharia it is not from the sharia and ash-shatibi says al-masalih al-mujtalaba shar'an وَالْمَفَاسِدَ الْمُسْتَدْفَعَ إِنَّمَا تُؤْتَبُرُ مِنْ حَيْثِ تُقَامُ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا لِلْحَيَاةِ الْأُخْرَى لَا مِنْ حَيْثِ أَحْوَاءِ النُّفُوسِ 
في جلب مصالحها مصالحها العاديه او در مفاسدها العاديه so he says the the, the the beneficial interests which the Sharia is trying to bring out and the harms and corruptions which it is repelling that these are only from the angle that these these are from the angle that this life is established only for the purpose of the next life right now think about this now in other words whatever Allah has legislated for his servants it is in order to help the servants establish a life in which they draw the benefits and repel the harms, but only for the purpose of the next life. Right? So remember we said that the law bears in mind this life and the next life. Why? Because this life is, is a stepping stone for the next life. So all of the laws of Islam are simply there to transition the servants to the next life. And so therefore they bring out the benefits, repel the harms, so that this life can be established in the best way possible, ready in preparation for the next life. Right? This is how the Sharia has come in order to guide mankind. Then he says, so, so after describing that this is how it is, لا من حيث أحوى النفوس It is not, not from the angle of whatever desires are found in the souls of the people. Right? In whatever they want to bring about, of whatever benefits they want, they see. And whatever harms they want to repel. Right? So, then he goes on to establish, then there are basically four types of evidence or proof for this, for, for the fact that this is uh, the case. Um, very, we very quickly uh, summarize them. First of all, Allah said in the Quran, وَلَوِتَّبَعَ الْحَقُّ أَحْوَاءَهُمْ لَفَسَدَتِ السَّمَاوَاتُ وَالْعَرْضِ وَمَنْ فِيهِنْ That if the truth was in accordance with their desires, then the heavens and the earth would have been, become corrupted, and likewise whoever is within them. This now is a proof that the Sharia has not, is not based upon the desires of the people. And if it was based upon the desires of the people, then the heavens and the earth would be corrupted, would be corruption. And now you can see that corruption in secular societies, atheist societies. Look at the corruption that is found in their societies. Alcohol problems, uh, riba has loot, looting their nations. Uh, the wealth is being you know, taken, property being confiscated. right? Uh, uh, all sorts of social ills, social evils. Right? All of these we know, we, we've mentioned this uh, previous times uh, in previous lessons as well. So first of all, this is from the, the ayah. That the, the, the truth does not follow the desires of the people. Uh, secondly, um, secondly, the reason why it is in accordance with the Sharia is because sometimes there are conflicts, right? So, for example, there are some situations where loss of life is concerned, but the goal is better and higher. So, an example of this would be jihad. Right In jihad there is loss of life. But the preservation of the deen is higher than the mere loss of life. For that reason we are permitted uh, to, 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 to make jihad, to repel, and tran- repel the transgressing enemy, even though there is loss of life involved. Right, So meaning that, that there are some situations where uh, sometimes what is commanded and beneficial is mixed with something which is harmful. Something which I- I involves uh, loss of life. 
And so only the legislation, the Sharia is, is able to uh, decide, only Allah legislates, that allows us to give the right priorities to each of these things. Do you understand? So, so if, if, for example, jihad was abolished, then that would mean that the loss of the deen entirely, completely, it would be gone. Right? And, you know, so, so, so in other words, um, this is a second evidence as to why legislation is not based upon the ahwa of the people. Third, third example is that um, a lot of the time what is beneficial and harmful is actually uh, relative. Right? At some times something can be harmful, at other times something can be beneficial, even food and drink. When you eat food and drink at one time, it could be beneficial, at another time it could actually be harmful for you. Right? So many things can be harm at one time, uh, beneficial at the other time, and you know, all of these things can basically change. So this is another reason why it is the legislation that decides, right? And it is not based upon the desires of people because to people sometimes something can be beneficial, sometimes something can be harmful, sometimes all of this is constantly changing and in flux, and so therefore, uh, you know, it cannot be left to that. The fourth and the final thing is that um, sometimes uh, people's objectives in in one issue can be can be different. Um, what do we mean by this? So, um, for example, like in, in, in one issue, a person might uh, benefit, but another person might, uh, you know, might lose in that particular thing. Um, there's no example given. Um, for example, it could be gambling, for example. Uh, in gambling, there's losers and winners. And each person, so it's one act, one deed, but there's winners and losers. Right? To some people, it's a beneficial interest. To others people, you know, they see it's a beneficial interest, but it's a loss for them. Right? So in different things, it's not the same for everybody. Do you understand? Like one thing is not the same for every person. In, for one thing, there could be loss for one person and a benefit for the other person. And in one thing, there could be a tremendous benefit for one and less of a benefit for the other. So there are some things in which the, 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 the people uh, are harmed or benefit in different ways. Right? So if this was left to the, the desires of people, then there would be, again, there would be chaos. So again, because of this reason, it is, it is uh, the, 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 the sharia that comes and defines what is maslaha, what is mafsada. So these four angles, what they basically prove is that the Islamic laws and prohibitions, they are not based upon the ahwa, the desires of the people. And if it was left to the desires of the people because of the very nature of life, of the very nature of life, that benefit and calm can be relative sometimes, it can change, people have different goals, objectives, desires, all these things, it makes everything very complicated and whatever, it will become a big mess, it will become a big mess. So the, the Sharia comes and it, it does it on the basis of truth and justice and the actual beneficial interests of mankind. And that's why over time you will see that, though, that, that nations, you can see even now in Islamic nations, you see that um, there is a degree of law and order that you cannot find in non-Muslim nations. But right? in terms of safety, 
in terms of you don't need to fear for your life, you don't need to fear you know, being robbed or stolen. There are many things even now you can see in Muslim societies where you, fee- you see that the law has a, a beneficial uh, effect because the beneficial interests of people are protected because it is the legislator who has put them in place. Whereas in other nations, you see absolute chaos. You know, as soon as you leave your house, then you will be stabbed or mugged or whatever else. There's no fear. There's no. Uh, uh, there's no. There's, you know, uh, you, you don't feel safe, right? And same same with many other things. Um, your children are not protected. They could be groomed. They could be kidnapped. They could be this, whatever. There are many things that you see, um, and that's because that law of Allah Zawajal is not based upon the ahwa of people, but it is based upon Allah's rahmah, ilm, and hikmah, as we, as we said. So we'll conclude that lesson there, inshallah ta'ala. And um, so just to uh, recap, we are speaking around what you see on the uh, screen, on this slide. Everything that we've discussed in this lesson uh, is kind of like an explanation of this statement. Laws are legislated to bring about benefits and repel harms with the aim of protecting the beneficial interests of humanity by guaranteeing their vital necessities, dururiyat, their needs, hajat, and their means of perfection, tahsiniyat. So with that we'll conclude and we'll continue inshallah ta'ala after Ramadan uh, with, you know, with this series. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu alayhi wa muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa